Okay, are we good? Hey, it's been great to be with you all. I've really enjoyed it. Sue and I, um, you know, get a chance to do a variety of things and uh, for us to come up here and, and spend a few days together and with our own kids um, has been really good. You've been uh, incredibly welcoming and friendly and uh, it's been a great time for us. So thank you for that and uh, I look forward to opportunities for us to connect again. So. Um, this morning, I, I want to, well, first of all, I want to remember this at the beginning because I always forget. Um, I want to mention again, just because I don't want to take them home, uh, I have some books in the back. Um, if, if someone's asked, give me the, which one is the best? And you can't really answer that because every one of you is different. Um, there are idea books, there's ones for, you know, teenagers, parenting teenagers, some for, you know, have a new kid by Friday, which I think is the most courageous title of, of a book. Um, but uh, resources like that and also some information about uh, youth leadership, we are very similar to Family Fest. We have shared common values and uh, we care about serving parents and churches. If there's any way we could come and into your church and do a seminar with parents or something like that, let us know. We'd be happy to do that or train volunteers. We coach youth workers um, who are trying to figure out how to share the gospel to the next generation. So anything we could do in that regard. Um, one of the things that happens for us as parents is uh, you get uncool pretty quickly in the journey. You, really, you, you think you might still be, but you probably aren't anymore. A uh, couple indicators uh, that you know you're no longer cool, especially in the eyes of your kids, is uh, someone sent me this. I don't know why they would send me this, but um, you're proud of your lawnmower. Right away, every kid knows you are totally uncool. Um, you have a party and your neighbors don't even notice it. Because now the word party is, you know, you stay up past 10 o'clock. Um, or people call at 9 p.m. and ask, did I wake you? That's a bad sign you're getting older. You have owned and since disowned Michael Jackson's Thriller album. How many? Have, uh, yeah. um, you leave concerts and ball games early to beat the crowd. That's a, that's a sure sign that you're gone. Um, you remember when Goldie Hawn got her start on Laugh-In? <laughs> and you thought laughing was funny, then you're really old. You own a garden hose, pretty much you're uncool in the eyes of a kid, especially if you have a reel, and you're proud of that reel. Um, you're, this is a, one, a bad one. When you're asleep, but others worry that you're dead. That actually had Brie, I was taking a nap, and Brie came over and poked me. And I woke up and said, what? She goes, I just, I just wanna know you're okay. I'm like, holy cow. Um, so I want to talk about going home. You know, this is where we turn, and, and now it's a chance to go home. And, and like I said, even this morning was a reminder that life, when we get home, gets crazy. Um, some of you are taking home sick kids. Some of you are taking home really tired, crabby kids. Some of you are taking, some kids are taking home really crabby, tired parents. I mean, it just all of a sudden, we leave here and life happens. And I want to think about the excuses that you and I tend to use that when we go back into our real world, when we try to make life work there, faith work there, there tends to be some voices that pop into our head as to why we don't do things. Um, I want to remind you a couple things we talked about the other day. One is uh, parenting requires clarity and, and in your purpose, and not to raise children, but to raise adults. Deal with power and control. That's a tricky one. We talked about fighting the culture. Um, not because culture is terrible, but it is going to pull people. It has certain values, and whether it be the happiness thing or the four Ps, we're going to have to figure out how in our family we're clear about this is what we want to build into our child, the character traits, the, the qualities, et cetera. And vagueness will kind of kill you. 
Uh, vagueness is killing the church, kills a lot of us. Um, and then, therefore, naming your core values. Some of you have been talking to me about that, telling me kind of ones you're working on or ones that came really quickly to you. And that's good. To name them, think about them, talk about them. What are the things you're hoping for? But remember that something is better than nothing. Hope is not a strategy, uh, but strategy doesn't have to be huge. It can be something. Do something when you get home. The excuses will tend to cause you to, to not do these things. Uh, it will tell you to kind of stay where you are. So what I'd like to do to kind of give a frame of reference around it, since I tend to be that, that guy, um, I'd like to think about the, um, an Old Testament passage with a familiar name, uh, a guy named Moses. You know, if you've been to Sunday school, you've heard the story and you know, a little quiz of all the basket and, ra- you know, he was raised uh, under Pharaoh's, uh, in Pharaoh's home. And then in that day, that meant he was the upright, he had all the four Ps. He, he, he was popular, he was, had the possessions, he had the training, he had education. He had everything going for him for the first 40 years of his life, right? Remember that? And then anybody remember what happened at 40 years old? A little Bible Sunday school trivia. What happened at 40? Anybody? He killed somebody. Got mad because a guy was messing with one of the Hebrews and he knew he was of Hebrew origin and so he got mad and he killed the guy. That shows decision making but not great judgment. And so his anger got a hold of him. He killed him, buried him in the sand. The next day someone um, mentioned it and so in a great act of courage, Moses runs and hides. So he goes and over the hill into Midian, which is kind of the, as far from the, the, the place where he had been as possible. Now you have the next 40 year chunk of his life where he's hanging around sheep and he's a shepherd, that's it. I don't know if I wanna offend anybody, but I worked on a sheep farm for one summer uh, when I was a teenager. A couple things about sheep you need to understand. One is they smell really bad. So, I mean, it's just kind of gross. And number two, they're really stupid animals. They'll eat themselves off a cliff. And they're just dumb. So a guy who's been hanging around sheep for 40 years, 80 years old, who smells bad and has been hanging around dumb animals for 40 years. Okay, this is the person God picks. Not the 40-year-old who's got education and got all the stuff and got the four Ps. God always surprises us by picking the weirdest people, kind of like us. People who, who just look weird, and there's Moses. So here's the Sunday school, and you've probably heard it many times, but let's just remind you again. Moses was tending flock of his father-in-law, working with his father-in-law. Um, he led the flock to the far side of the desert, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him. He got that burning bush thing. Remember Sunday school? Little flannel graph figure. Ooh, Moses walked. Okay, here we go. Angel of the Lord appeared to him, fans of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Okay, so you gotta remember, I mean, this is Sunday school, but you gotta remember, he saw a bush on fire, and it wasn't on fire, or he would have thrown water on it. But there was something inside the bush that was weird. What would you do if you're walking by yourself and you see this like really bizarre, strange sight of a flame inside a bush? I don't know about you, but I would not do what Moses did. Because here's what Moses said. This is when I like the King James Version best. Because the King James Version says, Moses said to himself, Hark, I shall turn aside and see this wondrous sight, why the bush shall not be burning up. What? I wouldn't, I'd be like, Hark, I shall get the heck out of here. (laughs) I shall runneth that way. I'm not going to stick around weird stuff like that. Are you? If you are, you're you're weird. Uh, 
Why does the bush not burn up? And so then he turns, and then remember that Sunday school? God speaks to him in the bush. And there's a whole lot of language here. But basically, here's what, I, what God said to Moses. Moses, um, I want to use you back in the real world because there are people who are hurting there. I've heard their cries. I've heard their needs. But I want you to go represent me and, and speak on my behalf and go do it. Ready? Go. And like people in the Bible, we tend to think people in the Bible are always frontline, motivational speech kind of people, you know? Me and God, we're going to go get them. We're going to tear it up. It's going to be awesome. Um, I would think Moses is a lot more like you and me. Because his first thought was, that's a really dumb idea. And don't you think sometimes when you start trying to find a way to, to put your faith into practice somewhere, whatever it is, whether it's just starting to figure out if there is a God, or if you really believe there's God, but putting it into practice wherever you are in the real world, there is, there's things that trip us up. It's the excuses that come. It's the response to this. So let, I want to unpack five excuses Moses gave that I think travel way over time and speak to us as parents or just as leaders or people in the workplace, uh, or whatever, wherever our faith is. Um, the first thing he says is, uh, God says, I want to do all this stuff. I am sending you. And in verse 11 of chapter 3, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Another translation says, I am not a good man that you sh- I should do the thing you've asked me to do. In other words, his first response, like I think us, is I'm not good enough. You know, I, geez, I, I don't have this all figured out. I make mistakes. I'm not a perfect parent. So how am I supposed to be? Remember I said the functions of teaching and modeling? A lot of you started tripping over those. Like, how do I model this? I don't do a very good job modeling. Because our first reaction is, I'm not good enough. You might have, like me, a voice. I have a scribe that travels with me. And the scribe, ever since I was little, is the one that immediately will point out my mistakes. I have a perfectionist scribe that reminds me, you failed here, you lost it here, you shouldn't have done that, you shouldn't have done that. Uh, you, it sounds like different for some of you. Some of you might even have this kind of scribe with you. Probably saying to yourselves, hey, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna get the world by the tail and wrap it around and pull it down and put it in my pocket. Well, I'm here to tell you that you're probably gonna find out as you go out there that you're not going to amount Jack squat. <laughs> I don't know if that's your voice, but uh, that's often uh, the, the, the issue. And you and I need to fi- figure out that, that God has always worked with crazy people. People, 80-year-old smelly sheep herders who think they're not good enough. People like you, people like me. People. For some reason, God keeps working with people who are uh, imperfect. Um, and so I have two leadership rules um, that I often give in classes, and I just want to throw them out to you. Um, one is, it's not about you. Just remember this. It's so not about you. Doesn't that kind of help you relax a little? I mean, the perfectionist part of us, when you, I got to do everything right. It's, it's okay. Um, I think, uh, you know, one of the things I've learned about, you know, having a relationship with Mandy and Ryan and Bree and Sharon is that Sue and I can still recollect mistakes we made, and they probably can too, but they don't dwell on them for on our behalf, which is really nice of them, don't you think? <laughs> because if they dwelled on our mistakes, it would just be painful. Instead, they remember the, the more positive things. It's not about you so much. God is 
God is bigger than you. But here's the second rule that I, the reason why youth leadership exists is because it's about you. <laughs> you figure out how to put them together. I've been a leader for 40 years trying to figure out how to relax a little. It's not about me, but it is about you. It, it matters. Your integrity matters. Your life matters. The choices you make as a parent matter. Um, investing in your kids matters. So it is about you, but just when you get all hyper and think it's all about you, take a breath. It's not about you. Um, and I don't know how you're going to figure out how to put those together, but the good enough thing only focuses on you, and then you start feeling not good enough. So that's the first excuse. Second excuse is, I don't know enough about God. Especially when it comes to faith stuff at home. You know, go do devotions with your kids or have a prayer time ritual, and you're like, I don't know how to do that. I, what if they ask me a Bible question and I don't know it? That's kind of what happens here. Um, he says, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What am I supposed to tell them? This was the big question for him, saying, how am I going to tell them who you are? And then God talks about the I am, and there's some weird stuff there. But the whole reaction of Moses at first is, I'm not a good person. Second, I don't think I can answer all the faith questions if, my, if I start anything with my kids. So what happens is we tend to clam up. We tend to not talk about it. Remember I said one of the things about family is to talk about faith? This is the excuse that will cause you to not. You hope your life will be the example. And that's good, but sometimes we have to talk about it. Just however that works for you. Um, with your personality of your kids. You have some kids who are just chatters, and they'll talk. Others of them are not. You have to find the moment, or the kid will find the moment for you when you're not ready. And you're getting dinner ready, and all of a sudden she comes over and Mom, can I ask you a question? If you're not careful, you'll miss that important little thing. Well, honey, I'm really busy right now. But often when your kids say, can I ask a question, whatever you're doing is not as important as that moment. Um, and it's hard, but, I, but you're, sometimes we're afraid because we don't know enough about God. Third one is a good one. What if they don't listen to me or believe me? It comes right up in the text. Moses says, what if they, verse, chapter four, verse one, what if they don't listen, believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? In other words, what if they doubt? What if they wonder? What if they struggle? Remember one of the faith factors is a safe place to struggle. What if they don't believe us? Of course they're not gonna always. People around us aren't gonna. People in the workplace are not going to. Um, that's part of what it's like. You, so you'll have kids uh, in your family they will start to struggle and what if they don't listen? It causes us to back away, to, to struggle, to say, well, I, I don't wanna say anything. And uh, it is important to give people space. Let them question, let them wonder. But what if they don't listen to me? Here's another one. Um, I don't have enough talent. <laughs> Here he asks in chapter four, uh, Moses is still arguing with God, by the way. And God is like, really, seriously, you think that's gonna stop me? They keep going back and forth. He says, oh Lord, in verse 10 of uh, chapter four, oh Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant, I am slow of speech and tongue. Now, you see, you got to understand, to Moses, the job that God gave him was to go from here, go there, and speak to Pharaoh. So his first reaction was, I don't know how to do this. And we think he might have had a speech impediment, something like that. But we don't know. But his first reaction is, I'm not talented enough. Don't you kind of feel like, if I could sing like that, man, God could use me. You know, God bless him. I just resent him a lot. Um, LAUGHTER you know, because he, he has, you think that, those are the kind of people God can use. But they, then we look at ourselves and go, holy cow, we got boringly ordinary in front of us. 
By the way, we talked in our small group about comparison. You do a lot of comparing yourself to other parents, to people in your church. Um, two things to think about when you come to comparing with people in church. Number one is most of your churches have magic doors in your church. Do you have magic doors in your church? Those are the doors between the parking lot and the foyer, lobby, narthex, or vestibule, depending on what you call it in your church. And uh, outside of that wall is when you're yelling at your kid, pull your pants up, I told you, get those earphones, you're screaming at them and you're being yourself. And then you walk through the magic doors and instantly you're perfect. You're like, hey, hi, how are you? And everyone goes, how are you doing? They're doing great. If you have teenagers, they're behind you going, oh, are you kidding me? Because the magic doors tell us that we have to fake it a little bit and we all get pretty good at it, don't we? That's one reason why comparison doesn't work. Second is you compare everything you know about yourself with everything you do not know about them and you end up coming up inferior every time. Because they look like their marriage is perfect, their kids are perfect and they get along and then you think of yourself and go, oh my gosh, my life is a mess. Um, uh, The comparison rule is everything looks better at a distance. Everybody's life looks better at a distance. When you get closer to it, you start seeing weeds in their lawn, lawns look better, marriages look better, kids look better. But when you get close, like you are with your own life, you realize, I don't have enough talent. I'm, some, I'm boringly ordinary. My life is a mess. Um, and then we realize that's doesn't, that excuse doesn't seem to stop God. Um, I, I, I don't often say this, but I'm just thinking about it. Um, had you told me when I was a teenager or a child that most of my life would be flapping my lip a lot, talking a lot, training people, doing three-hour seminars, all-day classes, three-day classes, blah, blah, blah. I get sick of me after a day. But, you know, two-day classes, three-day classes. If you would have told me that that would be my primary job, I would have said you are absolutely nuts. There's no possible way that could be true. There are two reasons. One is I didn't know anything about God at the time, and so the thought of talking about God just was weird. And secondly is because I I did have a speech struggle. Uh, Growing up, I stuttered and stammered and I lisped, and I went to speech therapist for most of my elementary school years. I was terrified of speaking. I took a speech class and I it was horrible. My first talk at Young Life, I think I almost wet myself. It was, I mean, it was beyond being scared. It was a terror that I would fall back into the patterns that I, that I had as a child. Because we have this voice that says, you're not good enough, you're just not good enough, you don't have enough talent, you can't. Nobody, that's... What's interesting to me, this is so, I, I, one reason why I don't say that is because every time I admit that in public, for the next two minutes, I am terrified all over again. I'm back at 11 years old, afraid that my speech is gonna become the problem, that I'm gonna, I focus on it, and I'm all over it again. I trip on myself. I've already just been painfully self-conscious the last two minutes. It happens all, it happens like this, folks. You sound great. <laughs> Thank you very much, I appreciate that. Um, and that's part of the struggle, is we have, most of us have this voice that says, you're not good enough. You're not talented enough. And it stops us from just relaxing and being who God wants us to be and then letting it grow. Uh, I would never have guessed, absolutely never have guessed. And here's the last one, this is a very common excuse, oh Lord, send someone else. <laughs> it's right up front, he goes, okay God, if you want someone to go do it, that sounds like a good idea, but I am so convinced someone else should do it. And that's really like a lot of us. We then say, well, I'll just let the church do it because they're better at it. They've been to seminary, they know about God. I'll just, I'll just bring them to a nice program. 
Uh, and yet, that seems to be, here's the thing that, that I read in this, is interaction, constant. I'm not good enough, I don't know about God. I, you know, and God just keeps kind of hanging in there, gives a few miracles about snakes and that kind of stuff. But consistently, here's what he says, I'll be with you. It's okay, I'm hang, I'll hang in there with you. You're a mess, yeah, I know, you're not very talented, you smell bad, you're 80, but that's okay. God seems to mess with people like us who are imperfect. Um, instead, he comes across this way. I want you to be my ambassador. Who's going to go for us? Uh, yes, you have a treasure in a jar of clay, which is a, the idea of a nick, not a knickknack, but a, an ordinary thing. It's like the equivalent in, Amer- in today would be um, styrofoam cup or a brown paper bag. Um, someone sent me this after I, I talked about this. Why God shouldn't have called you. Here's kind of a neat little list. There are many reasons why God shouldn't use you, because don't worry, don't, oh, you're in good company. You may be a mess, but you're in good company. Moses stuttered, David's armor didn't fit, John Mark was rejected by Paul, Hosea's wife was a prostitute, Jacob was a liar, David had an affair. Solomon was too rich, Jesus was too poor, Abraham was too old, David was too young, Peter was afraid of death, Lazarus was dead. <laughs> Generally that stops you, but not always. John was self-righteous, Naomi was a widow, Paul was a murderer, so was Moses, Jonah ran from God, Miriam was a gossip, Gideon and Thomas both doubted. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Elijah was burned out. John the Baptist was a loud mouth. Martha was a worrywart. Mary was lazy. Noah got drunk. Did I mention that Moses had a short fuse? So did Peter, Paul. Well, lots of folks did. But God doesn't require a job interview. He doesn't hire and fire like most bosses because he's more our dad than our boss. He doesn't look at financial gain or loss. He doesn't look at the four Ps. He's not prejudiced or partial, not judging, grudging, sassy or brassy, not deaf to a cry, nor blind to our need. As much as we try, God's gifts are wonderful, are, are free. We could do wonderful things for wonderful people and still not feel wonderful. God doesn't calculate what you did two years ago. He doesn't even on the record. Sure, there are lots of reasons why God shouldn't call us, but he wants to use us anyway. I just, I just, I love that reminder. And so in the midst of this, here's my question. Uh, what, what is, instead of no and doubt and questions, um, oh, I'm going to skip this, sorry. Um, what's your yes going to look like? We're going to go home, what's your yes going to look like at work, at home? Because yes, I, I, I love this phrase, God is most experienced in the yeses, when you say yes to something. When you, when you go, you know, you take one little step. Maybe it's the first step of yes, yeah, I'll try that. I'll, I'll, I'll go to that group, I'll start attending that, or I'll hang out with those crazy people, or... Um, I'll try a devotional or I'll, well, I'll try, what does the yes look like? Um, and by the way, we all struggle with it. I, I, let me give you one example. Uh, about 10 years ago, my pastor came to me and said, Tiger, I want you to come with me on a mission trip to Honduras. Uh, uh, a college class is coming. I'd like you to be the co-leader of the trip. And you know what? To be honest, I, my reaction was, yeah, it sounds nice, but I don't really want to go because Honduras is hot. And, uh, you know, I played the It's Not My Gift, you know, children's ministry. They're doing like VBFs and stuff. I love children's ministry from a distance, but put me in a room with glue and glitter and kids. I start to get the hives. I freak out. I, I don't know what to do. Teenagers, I'm fine with. Don't, you don't scare me. I'm a youth worker, but children kind of freak me out. And then I started thinking of children who speak Spanish. I don't speak Spanish. Now it's terrifying. So I, I just kind of went, you know, Bob, that sounds great. I'll, I'll you know, play the, I'll pray for you, but no, I, I really don't want to go. Or I didn't, I wasn't that blunt. I was like, I'll think about it. 
Um, and so I thought about it, but I didn't really think about it. And about a week or two later, he said, you know, I, I really want you to come along. Well, I appreciate that, Bob. It'd be great. Bob's one of my garden friends. I, it'd be fun to go with you, but I don't really think it's my calling. It's not my gifts. You know, I tried to play some spirit, throw some spiritual cards out there. Um, and then he comes back like a week later and they tried the, you know, I've been praying about it and I think God really wants you to go. I'm like, don't play that card. I said, I've been praying about it and God told me I don't have to go. <laughs> Which isn't true, because I hadn't been praying about it. Uh, so now I'm feeling guilty all the way around. Um, and I said, well, yeah, I, again, I'm stumbling over my own excuses. I really just didn't want to go. Then uh, he kept bugging me. People always just bug me. He just kept bothering me. And he, again, he's like, I really think you should go. I, there, I mean, you need to come. And then I played the heart card. I thought, this will definitely get him off my back. Well, I have a heart condition, Bob, as you know, and my doctor said it. I really shouldn't go to countries like that because they're not able to deal with the issue if something comes up. So maybe we'll just pray that God will protect you. Oh, don't do that. I'm like, really, you're gonna play that? He goes, yeah, we're just praying God, you'll be fine. <laughs> I, I lost all, I didn't know what to do. I was like, okay, I'll go. And I went <laughs> and it was hot and kids spoke Spanish. <laughs> And they spoke Spanish loud and fast. And then I'd get, tell them, no le entiendo, which means I don't understand. And then they'd look at you and go, da da And they'd start talking louder and faster. I'm like, that's not helping. And I was, you know, one, you know, the one issue, the one reason that was behind all of this, one of the reasons why I was most didn't want to go. And now that I've told last night, I'll tell you what, what it was. I was gonna be leading college kids and I knew that in Honduras I would have to admit that I'm weak and I can't be in front of the pack the whole time, that I would have to stop because heat does drain me and I would have to take a nap. And I thought, how embarrassing will that be? It was my ego that was really getting in the way of saying yes, because I didn't want to admit to a group of college kids that, that I'm frail. But I said yes and then uh, Nicole Perez changed my life. This little girl was the one that was there the whole time. Every session, Nicole was there. And um, this is the day we left and got a picture with Nicole. I thought, oh, what a great little picture, Nicole Perez. And I put her down. She, you know, did jabbered away. And I was like, Dios le bendiga, which means God bless you. That's all I had. Dios le bendiga. Put my pat her on the head, put her down. The line of people saying goodbye to us were there. She would walk around. She'd crawl, cut through the line and reach down and pull my pants. And I looked down and she'd go, Oh, pick her up. She'd jab her. I'd say, Dios le bendiga, kiss her on the forehead. She'd kiss me on the cheek, put her down, cut in line, pull my pants leg. After about the fourth time, folks, I am a mess. I am just a mess holding this girl. And it, it, I don't have these visions. It wasn't like I really, but it was like, kind of like I heard her look at me and say, are you going to come back? Did you just do this to feel good about yourself? Take a picture of the brown skinned child and go home? Or are you gonna come back and watch me grow up? Are you in or are you not? It was like, I turned to Pastor Bob. I held her like this and I turned to Pastor Bob and said, you've ruined my life. <laughs> Which is what I think God wants to do with you. He wants to ruin your life. In a way that just is like, where you're just like, are you kidding me? I said yes to something and now this? And sure enough, I go back every year because I wanna see her grow up. And there she is, Nicole Perez, in sixth grade. Our church now has a sponsorship program our small church. We have 54 kids sponsored by our church that give them a Christian education at that school and help them 
uh, with tangible ways to support them. Nicole was one of our first children we sponsored. There she is in sixth grade, and that was our first of our three kids that we sponsored. I said to particularly Nicole, I said, you know, through the translator there, I said, you changed my life six years ago when we first met. And I want you to know that God used you so that I just want to thank you for, getting, for being part of my life. And she jabbered something. And, uh, I, but I said, you know what, next year when I come back, you're not going to be at La Patria, and I'm going to be afraid I won't see you and that, that I won't get to know, see you next year. And she said, I will find you. I will be here. And I'm like, okay, that'll be great. <laughs> and so it becomes part of our lives. We get to know the family members. This is one family we've gotten to know. Uh, the two sisters, single moms with kids. These are some of their kids that we've gotten to know. And then one year, a couple years ago, we find out uh, Haiti and Yannet and Yudi uh, are living in that house. And my heart broke because we had gotten to know them. And this is their living room. This is where they live, dirt on the ground. They dress up every Sunday to come to church. Um, Haiti started to work part-time in the school. Um, and God just was saying to me, we gotta, we gotta do something. So last year, we went down and we bought an old property and they, their family and us together worked on this building and they picked the color and they have now a home and this coming next summer we will build the second part for the other family. Yeses, you never know where a yes is gonna take you. You never know what something small is gonna look like. But reluctant yeses is still a yes. And so I wanna close with this story from my friend Mike Akinelli. Um Every month, the youth group at River Church Road Church visited Holcomb Manor. Both my parents ended their lives in nursing homes, so this story makes a lot of meaning to me. Local manor, a nursing home, to hold church services for the residents. Daryl, a reluctant youth group volunteer, did not like nursing homes. But when a flu epidemic depleted the group of sponsors, Daryl agreed to help with next month's service, as long as he didn't have to be part of the program. So during the service, Daryl felt awkward and out of place. He leaned against the back wall between two residents in wheelchairs. Just as the service finished and Daryl was thinking about a quick exit, someone grabbed his hand. Startled, he looked down and saw a very old, frail, and obviously lonely man in a wheelchair. What could Daryl do but hold the man's hand? The man's mouth hung open, his face held no expression. Daryl doubted whether he could even hear or see anything. As everyone began to leave, Daryl realized he really didn't want to leave this old man. He had been left too many times in his own life. Caught off guard by his own feelings, Daryl leaned over and whispered, I'm... Uh, sorry, I have to leave, but I'll be back, I promise. That's what yeses do, they trip you sometimes. Without warning, the man squeezed Daryl's hand and then let go. As Daryl's eyes filled with tears, he grabbed his stuff and started to leave. Inexplicably, he heard himself say to the old man, I love you, and he thought, where did that come from? What's, what's wrong with me? Daryl returned the next month and the month after that. Each time it was the same. Daryl would stand in the back, Oliver would grab his hand, Daryl would say he had to leave, Oliver would squeeze his hand, and Daryl would say softly, I love you, Mr. Leek. He had learned his name, of course. As the months went on, about a week before the Holcomb Manor service, Daryl would find himself longing for a time with his new friend. Daryl's sixth visit, the service started, Oliver hadn't been wheeled out. Daryl didn't feel too concerned because it often took time to get everybody out, but halfway into the service, Daryl became alarmed. He went to the head nurse. Um, I don't see Mr. Leake here today. Is he okay? The nurse asked Daryl to follow her and led him to room 27. 
Oliver lay in his bed, his eyes closed, his breathing uneven. At 40 years of age, Daryl had never seen anyone dying, but he knew that Oliver was dying. Slowly, he walked to the side of the bed and grabbed Oliver's hand. When Oliver didn't respond, tears filled Daryl's eyes. He knew he might never see Oliver alive again. He had so much he wanted to say, but the words wouldn't come out. He stayed with Oliver for about an hour, and then the youth director gently interrupted to say they were leaving. Daryl stood and squeezed Mr. Leake's hand for the last time. I'm sorry, Oliver, I have to go. I love you. As he unclasped his hand, he felt a squeeze. Mr. Leake had responded. He had squeezed Daryl's hand. The tears were unstoppable now, and Daryl stumbled toward the door, trying to regain his composure. A young woman was standing at the door, and Daryl almost bumped into her. I'm sorry, he said, I didn't see you. It's all right, I've been waiting to see you, she said. I'm Oliver's granddaughter. He's dying, you know. I know. I wanted to meet you, she said. When the doctor said he was dying, I came immediately. We've always been very close. They said he couldn't talk, but he's been talking to me now and then over the last few days. Not much, but I know what he's saying. Last night he woke up, his eyes were bright and alert. He looked straight into my eyes and said, please say goodbye to Jesus for me. And he laid back down and closed his eyes. He caught me off guard, and as soon as I gathered my composure, I whispered to him, Grandpa, I don't, I don't have to say goodbye to Jesus for you. You're going to be with him soon. You can say hello. Grandpa struggled to, keep his eye, to get his eyes open and again. This time he looked, his face lit up with a mischievous smile, and he said, as clearly as I'm talking to you, I know, but Jesus comes to see me every month, and he might not know that I've gone. He closed his eyes, and he hasn't spoken since. I told the nurse what he said, and she told me about you coming every month holding Grandpa's hand. I wanted to thank you for him, for me. And well, I never thought of Jesus as being as chubby and bald as you. <laughs> but I imagine that Jesus is very glad to have had you be mistaken for him. I know Grandpa is. Thank you. I don't know what your yes looks like. Reluctant yeses sometimes turn out amazingly well. Reluctant yeses to Honduras. Reluctant yeses to a job at a drop-in center. Reluctant yeses... Uh, to say yes to go to young life. Reluctant yeses that start the journey of parenthood. I was scared to death when we were talking about becoming parents because I was terrified I would be a terrible dad. But we said yes to that journey and holy moly, there it goes. And I wouldn't turn back for a minute. But it's scary. Reluctant yeses still are yeses. And I just pray that your yes would look real in your real world and that you'd see and trust that God is gonna use whatever yes is in your family, your workplace, in your own life and see where that takes you because you know what, it's a journey. As my friend Mike used to say, it's all a roller coaster. But oh man, what a ride. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, helping each of us say yes. Even though we're scared and we have excuses Help us to uh, trust that a little bit more, love our kids a little bit more, be a little clearer. Thanks for the opportunity to be here, and uh, we look forward to where the yes is going to take us in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, thanks so much for a chance to be with you. Thanks for all your comments. It's been a privilege to be here. Um, so God bless you as you head home.